0: Hello and welcome to our University of Strathclyde podcast series, run out of the world-famous School of Education, right in the heart of the beautiful city of Glasgow in Scotland. We bring you a mix of meeting academic interviews, thought pieces, conversations and provocations on all things education, to give you a glimpse into our world-leading education research here at Strathclyde, and of course to stimulate your questions and thinking around the meaning, purpose and practice of education in schools, in communities, and of course in all our lives. Hello and welcome to the Institute of Education podcast. Today I am delighted to be joined by Alistair Wilson, who is a Senior Research Fellow in our Institute, formerly the School of Education. So welcome Alistair. Thank
1: you.
0: So maybe it would be useful to tell people who are listening a bit about yourself. You've been at the university for a while now, but what did you do before? And then what have you been doing since you joined us?
1: Uh, Well, my original background was in history and then did uh, a master's in adult education. um, And that was all at uh, Glasgow University. And I went straight from that into research. Um, I was fortunate at the start of my career to have a series of um, ESRC funded projects that ran for a number of years. Um, so I was based in the Strathclyde Centre for Disability Research at the University of Glasgow um, and I was there probably about six or seven years before I moved on to uh, Strathclyde and um, i been in the institute now for well not the institute for very long but I've been in the education in Strathclyde for, uh, ever, I think some people would think but yeah about 20 years now probably. Gosh so uh, at least you
0: stuck with us and didn't go back to Glasgow <laughs> and you recently so I should have introduced you as Dr Alistair Wilson because you recently completed your PhD so what was that all about?
1: Uh, well um, I mean I think I think when I was younger I thought a PhD by publication was for old boys you know getting near their end of their career and they wanted to salvage something and get a PhD um, and I was right <laughs> that's, that's exactly no I'm only joking I was um, just
0: about to say you're not that old.
1: I I, Twenty years old. I think as time went on, um, obviously it's very useful to have it. It's pragmatic to have it. But I think also as time went on, my kind of research career was quite varied. It looked at different aspects of inequality and different research approaches, different theoretical ideas, and it always a bit. It seemed a bit of a mismatch. Um, and when I did my PhD by publication, the the narrative I wrote was kind of linking together these papers and sort of pointing towards a, a kind of evolution of research if you like and, and trying to s- sort of look at it and see was it coherent um unfortunately for me when i was able to look back i didn't make it i thought i could make it coherent but it looked like an interesting sort of process but so what's it actually, the thread
0: that what's the thread that runs through the, the the articles that you used
1: it's basically about research and inequality um and then when we look at it there's different ways of of doing that, there's different theoretical positions, different methodological ways of doing it, different mm-hmm. research designs. Um, and I suppose what I was sort of trying to make sense of was why my research looked a bit like a sort of pinball of different ideas. Um, but actually when we sort of saw, sort of sat down thought about it and thought about the way we had reacted to the problems we were researching, um, it became a bit more coherent and I suppose I was able to sort of make sense of what that research journey had been. Um, and actually in doing that, uh, you know, I really enjoyed that. I thought that was, I mean, it really sort of gave me a lot of confidence about where the work I'm doing at the moment is and how it's evolved. So, yeah, I enjoyed that.
0: I suppose that evolution is important. Um, I mean, there's nothing new in education often, <laughs> but it's it's useful to be able to, to see what your contribution might have been across the years and how, how it's built one on top of the other, I suppose. So although you're looking at different methodologies or you're looking at different studies, that one thread allows you to trace your own history, I suppose.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I suppose making sense of where you are at the moment and, and justifying the way, you know, the direction of your research and the way <laughs> carrying it out at the moment is important. Um, The other thing I suppose that's run right through that has been Ideas of how we can actually affect some sort of change, um, and I think that was an interesting thing to think about. You know, the start of my work, your know, kind of research, kind of impact, if you like. I don't like impact; it sounds like a meteor hitting the earth or something. <laughs> your research is cosmic, but it's, you know, the sense in which it might be useful. I suppose um, at the start of my career it would have been, you know, making a video or producing a DVD about the research and so on. And now it's a lot more kind of embedded in how we achieve change within you know individuals institutions and more largely in the community
0: yeah i was interested like you i find the word impact funny because it does sound like one cataclysmic event rather than that evolutionary approach that um suppose the opposite of what's wiped out the dinosaur the evolutionary approach as opposed to the impact and i suppose you're um doing the doing the PhD in the way that you did allows you to see that as you say but I wonder then what lessons there are to be learned around achieving impact what so if you're talking about the idea of effecting change what do you see the change has been in your own work in terms of the impact or the change the benefit it's had to the communities that we serve and what messages would you share
1: oh yeah there's a number of messages I think probably one of the most difficult things for me in terms of this sort of impact agenda has been the way in which research is looked at and the way in which we try to measure impact. Um, and so very quickly in any of the work I've done, people have said, you know, is it scalable? You know, can we rule this out? You know, these sort of words and phrases. Um, and initially I sort of thought, well, if you do something like mentoring, which is obviously, obviously something we've developed along the way, and maybe talk about it later, you know, it very quickly became, okay, well, how can you franchise that? How can we get it working in other schools? How can it become a national program? Um, And, you know, in many ways, it doesn't work like that in education. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. a kind of McDonald's that you kind of replicate. Um, And we were always under a lot of pressure to do that and to act in that way, a very sort of positivist way of assessing a pilot and, you know, then rolling it out. But it doesn't work like that. And, you know, the mentoring we would do in, in parts of Glasgow would be, completely different to what might happen, say in Fife. And I remember one school in particular recommending Pupil's Higher Education Program, which is about young people going to university. Um, and we had about 30 or 40 recommended young people. And they were all girls. Uh, we didn't have any uh, meals at all in the group. And when we looked at it, you could see the young meals in that area, you know, are very much kind of in the culture of getting an apprenticeship, you know, uh, going mm-hmm. into the trades, you know, having their own flat and paying for their own flat by the time they're 19 or 20. Um, so just replicating our mentoring, regardless of that kind of cultural situation, would just be mm-hmm. the analysis. Uh, it would have worked for a lot of the girls, but we wouldn't have captured uh, these guys. So, you know, you can see that, it, you know, if there's something replicable in what we do, it's the way you work in each community that, recognize, that allows you to recognise these issues and problems. Um, and then that's something that becomes
0: replicable. And that's a hard thing to resist, isn't it? When there's pressures of funders, there's pressures around the likes of the research exercise. There's there's pressures, I suppose, to keep publishing. There's all sorts of pressures, um, including um, the the need to to find funding for things. That I suppose are, are, it's quite hard to resist when you you found a model that that works in a particular context. It, it's quite hard to resist the urge to, oh well, I'm sure it'll just you know if we do a few tips and tricks for people, it'll it'll translate really
2: easily.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you and you know, there's also the sort of sort of human element in the sense that you know you're delighted when it works and you want mm-hmm. it to be something that you've developed and you know the wee team of us that have done it, myself and Katie Hunter, we've been so excited when we got to different stages of the project. Um, but you also recognise, I suppose, looking back, that we haven't achieved the sort of long longev- longevity, if you like, that we should yeah. have. Why is that? Um, and then you realise that the community and looking at different communities is a better focus in terms of achieving change. So, yeah, you do have to resist your own kind of uh, ego getting involved and sort of like, yeah, hey, we got something amazing, this is great, and, you know, going to conferences and talking all about it. Uh, in some ways, I'm kind of relieved that we didn't publish as much because I'm sure that some of what we had published at different stages, we would now look back on and be kind of you know, embarrassed by in some ways and the sort of naivety of how we approached it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so I think there's a lot of pressure to act and for research to be seen in certain ways and particularly around ideas about impact. And that's a problem in terms of how we're viewed and how we navigate that. But I think as researchers, we've got a responsibility to resist. You know what I mean? If, if we're put under pressure to behave in certain ways, we have to be able to resist that. Um, and that comes from your own work, your own research, your own ideas, uh, and a sort of coherency of that that you can use to argue and make your point clearly mm-hmm. with people.
0: So I suppose you mentioned the mentoring there and I suppose there'll be people listening that that don't know about your mentoring project, although it's, it's legion amongst those of us that work in the Institute. We, we know all about it, but it would be helpful if you could maybe explain how it actually works, never mind the research. What is it all about?
1: Okay, so the mentoring is, well, the first thing to say is that our mentoring now is seen as a part of what we do, but not it's not the overall ambition. We're very much about achieving community change uh, and some of that will involve mentoring work but it also involves all sorts of other ways of engaging with families and communities so up front I would say that's not our main focus anymore um, but having said that it's a vital part of it um, so our initial work in mentoring started um, probably about 12 years ago maybe a bit longer we did some work in Springburn Academy where very very few of the young people went to university if any and certainly none of them went to courses. So nobody had become a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, teacher in Springburn for a long time at that point. Just occasional, very exceptional young person. Um, We started off sort of providing the young people in sort of S5, S6 that the head teacher recognized as, you know, interested in potentially going to university, but not really sure about when to do it or not or what to study. Um, So our project originally was a mixture of kind of tutoring and mentoring. But very quickly we realized that mentoring was you because young people didn't understand career paths, past, didn't understand university. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they wouldn't see university it's probably one of the most fundamental things. They wouldn't see university as a stage in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, very middle class. I say very middle class. Like when I talk to my kids, I would talk about maybe you'll you'll go to university, and I would just talk to them about that as a period in their lives where they go away and do things. We'd never actually have discussed individual courses, so it becomes ingrained in them as a stage in life young people we work with from more what we describe as working class or poor areas would see it very much as like you know an extension of school i'll still keep my job I'll still work part-time or full-time i'll still keep my friends still live locally and it's very hard to treat university like that mm-hmm. So young people in glasgow would commute to sterling or edinburgh and try to isolate themselves so you know they become isolated then from the, the broader student cohort so a lot of what we were recognizing in mentoring were these differences around basically around social class. Uh, and so the mentor became a kind of bridge into university, a bridge into these different worlds. The other thing is that very few of the young people have connections that are useful. So, mm-hmm. you know, with one sort of well publicized case of a young woman who eventually went into medicine, but, you know, in her wider family circle, friends, she didn't know anybody that even worked for the NHS, much less a, a nurse or a doctor or whatever, um, she wrote to about, I think she wrote to about 50 GP practices to try and get work experience and didn't get yeah. a single response. Wow. So imagine her positioning herself towards, you know, understanding medicine, going for an interview, showing what experience she has. She's got mm-hmm. absolutely nothing. And her mentor was a, a retired consultant who obviously had all these networks and experiences and mm-hmm. you know, got her involved and connected to people. So... The intergenerational aspect of our mentoring is crucial. It's about people with experience and knowledge and time that can nurture that in a young person. And how
0: do, you find, how do you find them, the mentors?
1: Well, we're always looking for them. So if you want to mentor somebody and you're out there, give us a shout. Um, we've gone through different avenues. We've, we've went through the University Lifelong Learning um, Department, which is really helpful to us. Uh, there's a real sort of large group of people there you can approach. We've done external advertising, and... Um, All sorts of avenues, really, and more more recently with um, different universities, alumni, and um, you know, these all kind of bring a new sort of area where, or sorry, they they, they get get us access to different areas to find mentors. But actually, the most powerful thing is word of mouth Mm -hmm. because you have a mentor who, you know, is so excited because their mentees managed to get the grades and they rang them at four o'clock in the morning when the results came through and everybody's celebrating. You know, that's the best marketing you can possibly have. Mm. So we're always looking for mentors. Um, but we extended, our initial project was very much young people, S5, S6, hoping to go to university. Um, and then we teamed up a wee bit with Sue Ellis because Sue was doing a lot of work in early literacy, reading mm. difficulties in um, primary one, primary two. And um, we realized our mentors were actually an ideal sort of person there as well. So Sue developed some courses in terms of helping the child, you know, help a child learn to read. Is the name of that project or is the name of that project? And Sue has helped us support mentors in terms of how to sit with a child. But again, it's just about, not just, but it's very much relationship-based. Because a lot of the, the children we're working with, you know, they'll struggle with reading. You might mm-hmm. be the only person as a mentor that really sits down and spends time with them and can help them, you know what I mean? So that project's been very successful, and we've enjoyed doing that. It's a different kind of uh, feel to it than what the higher education one has. But it's probably summed up by one of the mentors. I think the year before last, um, told me that she had worked with a child and enjoyed the relationship. Child was doing quite well, um, and then she got an invitation from the school to go to the sort of Christmas party. <laughs> excuse me, and she said she was really busy and wasn't really able to go but the last minute she decided to go and she said the child you know ran up and gave her a big hug and gave her a Mm -hmm. present and she said you know she realized in that moment how much how important it was to the child Mm -hmm. how important her relationship was with the child and also how that had helped them in terms of their schoolwork and their reading and Mm -hmm. just their confidence so these projects excuse me they're not they're not easy to to manage and run and we set up a social enterprise to manage all this separate to the university because the university research and development work was kind of done and now we need it we have a program um so they're not easy but when you have stories like that you know mm. they're, they're, they're great fun and you see what they um you know what it can do for children and young people <clears throat> and you ultimately know.
0: i suppose you'd hope that the young people when they finish their university career or whatever they then are able to go back in and, and mentor young people in their old school, I suppose.
1: <laughs> yeah, we've we've taken a few back at different times. Um, we have a couple of really funny sort of situations where they all came back and they were now like qualified lawyers, accountants, doctors, teachers, drive driving their Audi <laughs> Cabriolets and parking in <laughs> the car park. That was quite funny. Uh, I sort of felt the need of mentor myself after I witnessed that. Um, but the, the mentoring is crucial and it's a vital part. But a lot of you know the ambition for our research. At the moment, our research and development work, if you like, is very much a community focus. Yeah. So it's about, let's take a community. Um, so some of the areas we're working in at the moment, whether it be in Easterhouse or Springburn or parts of Alamo, these are areas where very few young people will succeed in education, really. Mm-hmm. And education doesn't deliver for them. Um, but it's part of a broader community issue. You know, these are communities that have really been hammered, uh, really suffer
2: yeah. socially
1: and economically. Um, so you need that community to see a sense of how to change and to work with them. So what we're doing there is developing much more close work with community learning and development teams, uh, working in communities. You know, we have a reading project. The Bowmore Bookies in the Palawa is a group of mums that started the kind of reading project. And we, mm-hmm. you know, we provide books, we do events, and the kids are exposed to the sort of issues around reading and literacy in a very kind of implicit way. And Sue Alice is a, is a main lead in that. Um, so, you know, we've got quite robust underpinning kind of research mm-hmm. underneath these, and we're researching as it, as it goes along. But the exciting thing is to think about a community as it is now and how it might be different in five years' time. Um, so that is that your? And different things.
0: Is that your funded project then that on your website is called Our Community Building Belonging and Beating Prejudice, or is that a different project?
1: That's a different project. And The community work is, you know, um, if people are interested, we've got a website sort of capturing where we are and what we want the funders to see and how to take that forward. It's very much community based on a kind of model of working with communities to identify areas for development, some of which might be mentoring, but some might be or whatever. No, the project you just mentioned is part of a sort of longer history I've had in terms of working with people with learning disabilities. Um, and a number of years ago, I did some work with uh, Andrew Yehoda at the University of Glasgow, and we were looking at anxiety and depression in uh, people with learning disabilities, mostly young adults. Um, and from that work, that was a really interesting project. a lot of um, issues around having a learning disability, you know, and you know maybe being very anxious or depressed and having that attributed to your learning disability as opposed to being something separate and treatable. Mm-hmm. A really interesting project. But it exposed us to how it exposed us to how people with learning disabilities sort of live and exist in their communities and some of the difficulties they encounter Um and we got some funding initially from scottish government then enable to look at bullying of people with learning disabilities um, right. and that became very much about how do they live within their communities you know so we'd find young people that maybe got abused when they're on the bus um you know maybe when they walk down the street or maybe if they went to you know, some of the school special units or special schools, as they were, you know, it's a difficult life and one where they could be subject to abuse and so on. So we did a number of sort of little bits of work that accumulated cum- in some substantive funding to actually look at this as an issue. Um, and rather than address bullying of people, because um, in schools, bullying bullying is well rehearsed and understood mm-hmm. The processes. What we were interested in is what happens outside of school um, and what we did then was work with schools and develop a series of lessons that basically educated non-disabled children and young people about people with learning disabilities um, and that was really interesting because we could see you know that young people you know are accepting and can learn um, and basically a lot of people aren't exposed to a young person with Down syndrome or an old rattle with Down syndrome. That project was really interesting. It was very successful in the way that it was taken on board by um, schools and by teachers. Teachers learned, so we produced a series of lessons for teachers to use plus training for the teachers. And you know that that was quite a powerful little project. The natural evolution of that has led to this work, which is looking at. Um, how we actually integrate people with learning disabilities more into their communities. So, how can they be involved in, in activities and things that are happening in the communities with non disabled people? And at the moment, you know, I'm still working with Andrea Hoda and Rosanne McGuire's been key to this work as well. She really needs some development work. Um, and what we're doing is working in Drum Chapel and looking at ways in which people who learn disabilities in Drumchapel um can be kind of involved and you know. Have, base, I suppose, to build relationships with non-disabled people. And we've done a lot of work with uh, the high school there in terms of getting young people involved and getting mm-hmm. working with people with learning disabilities. So although that's a separate sort of strand of research that I've really enjoyed and uh, sort of kept alive, it actually has come into a similar place in terms of looking at communities as a focus for change. Um, so it's it's interesting that these things have kind of come together in many ways, because that's got a whole different
2: Mm. Uh,
1: heritage, if you like, with different colleagues, you know, Andrew's in psychological medicine. Um, so that's it's interesting that these things are kind of coming together in a way.
0: And do you think that in, in the ether, there is a move towards educational research going further into communities rather than just being school-based? When we think about the challenges that our children and young people and their families face, there seems to be, the word belonging seems to be bubbling up quite a lot at the moment. And I'm wondering if you think that actually the time is ripe where community is becoming an issue again.
1: Um, I think in our work, we would definitely say, yes, communities are hugely important, but, you know, the communities we are working in have very, very little in terms of facilities. You know, mm-hmm. We're talking about places, you know, one place that we've been to the community centre, if you could call it that, you know, we can't use the upper floor because the roof leaks. There's no heating in the ground floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you managed to get a sort of friend of a friend who's a plumber to put in a boiler that fires two radiators. So they've got one room. Mm-hmm. Uh, the council response to that is, oh, well, you know, form an independent sort of charitable group and then you can buy the building office and run it yourself. I mean, it's hundreds of thousands of pounds. Yeah. buy the building. You know, it's just bizarre. Alongside that, the community learning development teams have been decimated. Absolutely. Um, so you're, t- you're looking at communities where there's no vibrant community center, no vibrant youth work in many in many areas. Um, and so although our research might be saying, let's look at communities and work differently, you're actually looking at them at a time when there's basically very, very little, if any, resource. So that's really frustrating. There's very, very little to work with. And if your and- funding goes forward and it has a development aspect, it has to be able to fund what funders maybe would see as more statutory services. You know, so they might say, Why are you funding for community learning and development work? Sure, so there is a team there. That mm. you have to explain, yeah, it might be a team, but it's like one person or two people. Um, yeah. There's no way they can effectively do what we want them to do.
0: And then the community itself runs the risk of becoming more fractured because there's no nothing holding them together.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really I mean it's astonishing. I think some of the most difficult work I did was some initial work we did around Alawa, where the older generations, you know, would talk about it being a vibrant. You know, it was a community that was, um, there was a lot of mining and textiles, so it was quite a sort. of You probably see it as a kind of affluent working class, but I mean, the mining community paid for community centre, tennis courts, bowling greens, mm-hmm. trips to the seaside. It was a very sort of vibrant community, and a lot of the older people would report very happy childhoods of doing lots of different things. And now they're looking at their cha- children or grandchildren and thinking, you know, it's so sad with what mm-hmm. happened. This area is just so different. Um, So that's really difficult. You know, you kind of like to think that there's progress, uh, but there hasn't been. Um, so it's a difficult time. I think communities are really fractured in many ways. There's a lot of difficulties. A lot of the young people we look at, when we work with third sector organisations, you know, they don't have room for development work. So they don't mm-hmm. have work, work, they don't have room to do you know, even basic things like drug prevention work, you know, they're so tied up with the acute cases that any kind of development work just gets pushed to the side. So yeah, it's a really, really difficult time. I would say the interesting and the fun part is that when you work in these communities and you know, the little group of women we work with in Alawa and the home it's a really exciting little project. You can see how it impacts in their lives and how it gives them confidence and, you know, it's it's really there's always good things to see in it. So once you get involved and start working at it, you know, it, it kind of you're less overwhelmed by the, the sort of the bigger issues, and you sort of get on with it, and you can see progress.
0: I think that's really important. You know, to remember that there is good stuff going on, and and then you've got a story to tell. I suppose it's not the idea that. Um, people from universities are parachuting in and making it all better is somewhat problematic. But when you're when you've got a strong community there with sense of network or commitment, I suppose it makes yeah. our job in universities much easier. But we have to remember that we're not there to I don't know to colonize the community, if you like. So I'm thinking, um. If you were, if you had a key policymaker or first minister or the prime minister sitting in front of you, what, what would be the one thing you'd say to them?
1: Mm. (laughs) It's it's a really difficult question, because I find that a lot of what we do when we do meet policymakers is undo, try to undo some of the ways they've already established of how they think about problems and issues. Mm. You know what I mean? So, Some of the policymakers, for example, would see, um, you know, education as a way to fix, you know, educational inequality can be fixed within the schools. We'll fund the schools, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'll have f funding attainment challenge and so on. And so quite often you have a lot of work to do to sort of say, well, what does the research tell us about that sort of approach? It's not generally that effective Mm -hmm. what sort of things do work. And, you know, so I suppose if I had room to speak to somebody, I'd want to, Say to them, you know, come and see some of the things we've developed, some of the ideas, and you know, explain to them in many ways that this challenges the way you're currently thinking about a particular problem. You know what I mean? Um, and a lot of, you know, what we do in Scotland, which I find really, really annoying, is we parachute in other ideas. I mean, when people come to, you know, people from Scotland go somewhere else to see what happened. Um, you know, a lot of talk about the London challenge, for example, which is frustrating for me because. What I took out of the London challenge was they actually looked really carefully at what the problems were Mm -hmm. for them, how they were facing them and what they would do about it and how they would manage that. And then they did that and made a difference. Um, And, you know, that's what you should take out of it. So if we send a policymaker, it would be saying, like, you know, don't keep looking across for other ideas to bail you out. Invest in what we have and take it forward here. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe in the future, people will come to Scotland to try and work out how we solve that problem.
0: Well, I think that's probably um, a nice message for us to end on, the idea that there is a lot of good work going on in Scotland and that you're at the forefront of a lot of it, particularly in that kind of community context. Just before we finish, what's next?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, where we are at the moment is we've got a really good plan of how we'll take forward the community work. So, we've got enough now to sort of interest funders and say, here's how we, you know, here's what that plan is going to look like. It's a five year plan to work in different communities. Here's a mixture of ideas we're bringing to the table. But part of those ideas is how we actually navigate with the community that's there and how we work with them and develop them. Um, There's a lot of talk about how communities have got, you know, they, they have got their own resources and they've got people. But a lot of the people we've worked with, you know, it takes maybe a year to get and confident enough to discuss things with you and do things and it's not an easy process some of yeah. them obviously will get right into it with your uh, parents who are doing degrees and things like that but others will struggle so the process of working with them and helping grow things is part of what you factor into the project but basically that's what we're looking at we're, we're going to funders and saying here's five four or five communities we want to fund each of them to look very different in five years time and this is how we're going to achieve that and we've got quite a lot of interest in that. I think funders are starting to see this is a more interesting way. Maybe I've, ch- I've taken, a, mm-hmm. taken on of any challenging um, sort of project, if you like, or challenging issue in terms of education and the quality.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's
1: also something that I would hope, maybe in listening to this, some of my colleagues will see a bit more about what we're doing. And it's not just intergenerational mentoring. There's a different thing going on mm-hmm. Um And, you know, maybe be interested in contributing to that
0: fantastic well thank you very much it's been a real pleasure listening to your work and I've got ideas ticking over in my own head that once I hit pause on this button this recording I'm probably going to ask you about so thanks very much Alistair oh
1: thank you very much
0: thank you for listening in to our Strathclyde education podcast
2: series we'll be back soon with another episode